Shimon Peres' contributions span the first seven decades of Israel's history. His life and the country's life were inseparable. He is remembered as a leading statesman of Israel. Today we will focus on his role in the development of Israel's nuclear weapons program. Hello, and welcome to Decision Points. This season we will tell the story of important Israeli and Arab leaders and their contributions to Israel-Arab relations over the last 70 years. My name is David Markovsky, the Ziegler Distinguished Fellow and Director of the Project on Arab-Israel Relations at the Washington Institute, and I'm excited to go on this journey through history with you. Shimon Peres immigrated as a child from Poland to British-mandated Palestine in 1932. In the mid-1940s, he became the head of the youth group aligned with the labor movement, which gained the attention of the Zionist leader David Ben-Gurion. Paris quickly became a protege of Ben-Gurion. Paris spent the years leading up to Israeli independence, developing the Haganah, the pre-state Zionist military, and the early institutions of the state. In 1952, at only the age of 28, he was appointed Director General of Israel's new Ministry of Defense. Building up Israel's defensive capabilities was a task that took conviction, creativity, and chutzpah. Shimon Peres was the man for the job. Three big developments contributed to Israel's decision to seek nuclear weapons. First, the War of Independence exacted a heavy toll. Israel lost the full 1% of its entire population. Second, Israel had no Western security alliance. The U.S. had an arms embargo in Israel during the 1948 war. The U.S. wanted the Arabs on its side in the Cold War. Third, the war did not end Israel's enmity with the Arab world. To the contrary, Egypt's Gamal Abdel Nasser saw conflict with Israel as a galvanizing force in helping shape Arab nationalism. Israel was looking for a robust military option that would serve as a deterrent and signaled that Israel was in the Middle East to stay. There was a domestic debate in the 1950s within Israel about what to do. However, Paris did not see the alternative for Israel. Ben-Gurion was also worried about the momentum of Arab nationalism. This deterrent would be Israel's insurance policy in the eyes of Ben-Gurion and Paris. There were major obstacles. Israel didn't have the ability to produce its own materials, including reactors and uranium. More importantly, allies in the West who had nuclear material and knowledge, including the U.S., Canada, and Britain, were forbidden to export it to foreign governments throughout the early and mid-1950s. Paris saw another option, France. Paris believed that a militarily strong Israel was in France's interest due to the Algerian rebellion of 1954. This might sound esoteric to you, but actually it was very relevant. The Algerian revolt made France more of a pariah in the Arab world, and it was looking for allies. A deal with Egypt to stop arming the Algerian rebels fell through. Defense Minister of France, Bouge Monori, saw Israel as an ally in the Algeria crisis, given the enmity between Nasser and Israel. The relationship between the defense minister and Paris became personally very close. As a side note, France's foreign minister, Christiane Pinot, spent time in World War II in Buchenwald himself and wanted to help the Jews who he saw as the chief victim of the Nazis. 
It took Paris's personal relationships with French politicians, navigating the complexities of unstable French Fourth Republic politics. But after much patience, the French-Israeli partnership became a reality. In September 1956, the French Atomic Energy Commission and Israel reached an agreement to build a nuclear reactor. Cabinet-level French support was also required, which was achieved at the edges of a key summit in October. France had sought Israel's secret support for a military move against Egypt with the Suez Crisis, along with the British, when Egypt was blocking a key waterway, the states of Tehran. Now was the moment for Shimon Peres to seal the nuclear deal, as his leverage was optimal. The French officials agreed, including the supply of uranium to run the new nuclear facility. Perhaps the most dramatic move came at the end of September 1957. The scene is out of a Hollywood movie. The French defense minister went on to be the prime minister. After the Suez crisis, there were more arms sales from France to Israel. However, the nuclear deal was not yet complete, as Paris wanted also a plutonium separation plant. However, the French government was about to lose its parliamentary majority due to the controversy over Algeria. If the prime minister went down, so did Paris's hopes. It was literally a race against the clock. Paris engaged in a series of marathon meetings to get the required signature. In fact, the signature of the prime minister actually came after the government fell, but the prime minister postdated his signature. Construction began in 1958. Materials were dramatically snuck past French custom officers to protect the top secret project. The reactor went critical in the early 1960s, and Israel most likely obtained its first nuclear weapon before the 1967 Six-Day War. Israel is still yet to acknowledge its possession of nuclear weapons, leading many to say that Israel has, quote, a bomb in the basement, end quote. Israel has settled on a formulation that is often called nuclear ambiguity. Quote, Israel would not be the first country to introduce nuclear weapons, end quote, became the mantra. Israel's nuclear deterrent has kept it safe for the last half century. Without Shimon Peres' outside-the-box thinking and daring perspective and persistence in the 1950s, Israel's place as a military power would not have been secured. To discuss this incredible episode in Israel's history are two experts who know this period and know Shimon Peres very well, and they're going to be joining us in separate conversations from Israel. First, Nimrod Novik. Nimrod Novik served as foreign policy advisor to Shimon Peres for years, and he's really been a leading confidant of Shimon Peres for decades. Nimrod Novik is an advisor, a consultant for the Israel Policy Forum, and for a group called Commanders for Israel's Security. We're also joined with Shai Feldman. He was the director of the Crown Center for Middle East Studies at Brandeis University. He's on the board of directors of Harvard University's Belfer Center, at the Kennedy School, and is the author of six books, several of them focused on Israeli nuclear deterrence. He's currently the president of Sapir College in Israel. I'm delighted to be joined to discuss this important episode in Shimon Peres' life, straight from Renana, which is just outside Tel Aviv, with Nimrod Novik. So, we're trying to understand how this guy, Shimon Peres, he hadn't turned 30 years old 
when he was director general, which means the top professional in Israel's blossoming new defense ministry. It, it just, the state had just been formed. So how did Paris manage to advance to such a high position at such a young age? You correctly pointed out that before the age of 30, he was already at the top of the Israeli defense establishment. But uh, if you look back a little bit, he was 17 when he for the first time won elections. As a teenager who made Aliyah at a young age to Israel, he was driven by his being different, by his not being an Israel-born so-called Sabra. He admired the young generation of Israelis that he was surrounded with, and all his life he wanted to be like them and couldn't. He had a lot of uh, traits that he brought with him from uh, Poland, including a heavy accent that he never fully gotten rid of, but he wanted to be one of the gang, one of the guys. Well, you start looking back and say, what made him succeed at such a tender age? And what of those traits you can find later on in life, obviously more refined, more experienced, but nonetheless coming from the same source? By definition, I wasn't there when he was in his teens or 20s or 30s. I would say that a drive, an inexhaustible drive, he was working day and night. He needed very little sleep. It became already almost legendary, four hours or so, and he was fully energized for a full day's work. And he didn't waste a minute on anything but his ambition. And his ambition was up and up and up in the decision-making, in the national decision-making, in the partisan decision-making, in order to become one of the elite. It did not come natural. He was not born like Dayan to an elite family and many of the others with whom he competed and then became partners. So this outsider was driven to create a place for himself in the national leadership from his teens. Second, I would say, something that played both ways in his career, and that was his creativity and imagination. Sometimes it went that far as people looking at him and dismissing his ideas as totally ridiculous, detached from reality and not plausible. At other times, and particularly in retrospect, people were saying, wow, he really saw that very early on. And when he came up with the fact that Israel should have an aircraft industry, a country that was broke, that didn't have a serious military, that had one provincial airport, and he wanted to build an, an aircraft industry. Uh, he wanted to build the nuclear industry. He wanted to build the missile industry. All of those looked to those around him as impossibilities, not doable. And I would say the third very important trait that played throughout his career was a unique ability to read people. With him, it was intuitive. It was, I believe, innate, even though it was in, he improved on it with decades of experience. But it was something unique that I have not seen anywhere else. And maybe one more, which is not associated with Paris, but I think was very pronounced for those who saw him close by. Paris was blamed by his adversaries all his years as someone who seeks publicity. And as a politician, he certainly did. But what few were aware of is the extent of his discretion when it came to serious matters. 
Even issues on which, as a politician, he should have gotten a lot of credit, he kept very quiet about. I'm just wondering, when he told you these anecdotes, you weren't there at the time, so you're hearing it from Paris. What struck you as he recalled that period that he navigated the intricacies of French politics? He was quite proud of that period. And he describes it as not a matter of choice, but default. It didn't start with nuclear. It started with purchasing arms for the young state. And Ben-Gurion entrusted him with purchasing arms. And here was the United States refusing to sell arms to Israel. Great Britain refusing to sell arms to Israel. And he asked himself, who in the world is producing their own major system weapons? And there was only France. So he said, let's try. Let's give it a shot. Let's see what's going on. And he started to study France. He established a small team to study the French calculations, if you will. And he came up with several layers. I'm putting it more schematically than he does. Okay? He talks anecdotally. I'm trying to put it together. And he says, one, France was in a political chaos and governments were rising and falling with unusual regularity. And he felt that that's an opportunity rather than uh, a difficulty. You can play between political players when nobody knows who's going to be the next prime minister, the next minister, this or that. Second, he had a small team at uh, the Israeli Ministry of Defense helping him map the French terrain. And basically, he reached a conclusion that he can create a coalition between a diverse group and even group that has internal hostilities from the extreme right to the socialist left around his mission. He saw the military, which was quite rightist at the time, concerned about Algeria. Nasser's Egypt, President Nasser at the time, was playing a very important role in the anti-French underground in Algeria. And here is Israel offering to stand up to Nasser, which will limit his ability for mischief in Algeria. So here's the interest for the French military establishment. Then there was the Socialist Party that considers Paris and Ben-Gurion's party, Mapai, as a socialist sister, considered Ben-Gurion as a very important socialist leader, and felt affinity on that ground. Then there were those on the right and elsewhere who suffered from the Nazi experience and had sentiment to the Jewish state as a result of the Holocaust. If that wasn't enough, it's a sensitive issue. But in the club of Friends of Israel that he established, there were also key Jewish players. Some of them were heads of the French nuclear agency, National Nuclear Energy, but also in the arms industry. So he saw the potential to create this kind of an alliance around an issue that will soften the internal contradictions between these four different clubs. So listening to you, Nimrod, actually, I see a real, like, almost a linear extrapolation between what you were saying earlier and now, meaning Paris had this innate ability to kind of get in the skin of the person that he was negotiating with and see things from his perspective, the person he was dealing with, and therefore was able to kind of chart a strategy based on understanding their interests, their instincts, and not just look at it purely from an Israeli angle. Absolutely. Again, intuitively, he understood that making a breakthrough at one layer of the French system was not enough. 
So he was working just as hard to create breakthroughs and win the hearts and minds of the political leadership and the military uh, leadership as he was investing in the lower ranks of the system, those who will eventually have to carry out the policy. And finally, he realized that he can mobilize the support of the French industry, military industry, to lobby the government, because here is another client, a very potentially important client. So he worked the industry, the working levels, and the leadership simultaneously. So let me ask you, Nimrod, as Paris goes later in life and he's attacked in, in the Knesset by people to his right on Oslo, he would often push back. He would get very agitated. And he said, did you establish the reactor in Demona? Did you establish Israel aircraft, the Israel defense industries? And he would go through the whole list. He came across as a person who was very frustrated that a younger generation forgot that he was the key architect of the Israeli defense industry. But that was publicly. Privately, did it bother him, or was that only more a public persona? It comes back to one of the points that I mentioned at the outset, and that his sense that he was not a subrup and that he didn't serve, he did not serve in the IDF. That was a scar that he carried till his last day. It was a shortcoming he felt he never overcame. And emotionally, he never overcame it. Rationally, he knew, just like you and I do, that what he did for Israel's security, nobody in uniform has done more. In establishing the three industries I mentioned earlier, which is the aircraft industry, the missile industry, and of course, the nuclear industry. He was bypassing the system on critical moments when there were crises he always went outside to people who are loyal to him because he had this car of the system opposing his initiatives, creating bureaucratic difficulties on the road for his initiative. That's on the negative side. Uh, on the positive side, how he succeeded in getting the most important things done, the biggest projects ever in the history of the country against the will of the of the establishment. There was one name you didn't mention who opposed him because he was actually his partner. And in some ways, he was the quintessential insider, the ultimate Sabra, who was his partner in the 50s in dealing with France. And that was Moshe Dayan, who became chief of staff. And here was Shimon Peres, as you point him out, the quintessential outsider, more intellectual, a Europeanist in a certain way. What was the basis of their friendship uh, alliance in the 50s? The relations were not symmetric, but, you know, they were roughly of the same generation. They were both Ben-Gurion's protégés. He saw both of them as his best advisors on critical matters and as ones that he wants to see rise in the party and in the country. But it was not symmetric. Dayan did not like Paris. As most Sabras, he didn't like certain traits that Israelis in their arrogance, born Israelis in their arrogance, attributed to East European Jewish traits. But he knew that Shimon was a very creative thinker, was always coming up with solutions outside the box. He knew that Paris understand third parties better than anyone and could help navigate them and knew that Ben-Gurion will not tolerate undermining him. So on that basis was the alliance. From Paris' perspective, 
He admired Diane to no end. He was everything he wanted to be. It's the uniform, it's the mentality, it's the straightforward, it's the, I don't care what they say about it, I'll do the right, the things that I believe are right. Nimrod, I want to thank you so much because you have really given us a window into that thinking in, in the 50s, even though you weren't there, but given the decades and decades you spent with Shimon Perez, it rings true to me. My pleasure. So, Shai, how much of the alliance with France was driven from Israel's perspective by a desire to say it had a, a bigger patron? How much of it was driven by this desire for a bomb? So, first of all, the desire for an alliance was driven actually more than anything else by the absence of alternatives. As I said, the U.S. was not an alternative. There was an effort from the beginning, from the early 50s, to achieve the same goal uh, with the U.S. But as I said, the U.S. foreign policy at that time was under the very strong influence of the Arabists. They, of course, also were not happy with Nasser. That wasn't the question. The question was, where do America's national interests, where do they reside? And the general consensus at that time was that most of America's real interests were in the Arab countries because of oil. And then, of course, by that time, again, Stalin's Russia had turned away from, from the Zionist project. So it's not as if there was a real strategic choice. The turn to France was simply an opportunity. It was a, a, really a result of an accident. If France didn't have the interest that it had in trying to contain, stop the rebellion in Algeria, and if it did not perceive Nasser as fueling the revolutionaries in Algeria, that opportunity would not have been there. So it's not a matter of weighing different strategic options at that point. And here you have Paris, who is exploring the, the French scene, and the fact that Paris, at this point, is the deputy defense minister of a socialist-led government in Israel, and the socialists are in power in France, is in a position to explore this option and discover that it exists. So it's not as if this was driven by some consideration about building a nuclear option. The relationship between the two countries' defense communities was very, very strong. And at least there is a French or there is a French-focused narrative that said that essentially Israeli, Israeli officials were coming in and out of the French defense ministry in the eyes of some French nationalists as if they owned the place. And de Gaulle becomes president and expresses uh, dismay about this phenomena. And he wants to reconquer the defense ministry of France to become more French, French again. But we have to remember that despite all the, the so-called cooling that follows de Gaulle coming into power, Israeli-French military relations and defense relations continue way into the 60s under de Gaulle. Would it be fair to say that for Israel, this Demona project was a turning point in its own self-image, that it was no longer the fragile state of 48, but was now basically a regional power? First of all, if you're talking about the 1950s, this issue was not a turning point. Because, first of all, until 1960, nobody knows anything about the nuclear project. 
The first revelation, which was by an American media outlet, was in 1960. The compromise between the two camps, the deterrence camp, and those who didn't believe in deterrence was that you gradually build some kind of an option, but you definitely don't attribute to this option the same kind of deterrence robustness, first of all, that the French school attributed to it, and in fact, that France began to attribute it to attribute in the 1960s. So this is why the relative role of the nuclear issue in the 1960s is still very, very, very low. It doesn't play the role that it begins to play much, much, much later in the, in the second half of the 70s, in the 1980s, and so on and so forth. So you can't say that in that sense, it played a role in affecting Israel's self-perception, that somehow the nuclear dimension affected Israel's self-perception because of the alliance, because of 56. You cannot say this because the number of people that were even aware of this factor is very small. But how do you attribute, though, Israel's success in dealing with the Arabs and the U.S.? And I realize these were long processes. This, As you said, this did not happen overnight. And uh, many of the issues that Israel's had, with, even with the U.S., on nuclear nonproliferation took a long time. But somehow Israel came up with this formulation that it will not be the first to introduce nuclear weapons into the Middle East. These formulations over time, not immediately, I grant you, but has somehow eased most of the Middle East and the United States to have been a formulation that people found not to oppose. It's a big question. And unfortunately, I don't think it has a simple answer, but I'll give you a few dimensions of this. The common denominator between the different components of the answer is that, especially in the U.S. and in Europe, Israel came to be seen as a quote-unquote special case in nuclear non-proliferation policies and issues. Now, of course, there were some, for a limited number of years, there were exceptions to this case. Clearly, President Kennedy and in the early years of President Johnson after Kennedy's assassination, and as of that point, essentially, from early 1969 to this very day, Israel is seen as a special case in America's nuclear non-proliferation policy. Now the question is why? And that has a lot of components to it. One component, which I think is still in the 60s, and even in the 70s, still very strong, and that is the enduring effect of the Holocaust that somehow in the West, there is a perception quite common to many, many people, cross parties, cross defense communities, cross militaries, and so on and so forth, that because of the Holocaust, Israel deserves some kind of an insurance policy, some kind of a life insurance policy to make sure that the Holocaust is never, never repeated. So that's number one. Number two, I think that the familiarity of people in the Western defense communities, which is the American defense community, the British defense community, the French defense community, with their Israeli counterparts, has led to the perception that there's enough similarity between their Israeli counterparts and themselves. And this goes beyond the issue of common values and so on and so forth. It's really not about that. It's really about the familiarity leading to kind of a broad, unwritten consensus that, quote-unquote, they're just like us. 
or they're close enough to being like us. And namely, if we can trust ourselves, then we can trust them. And this is in sharp contrast to, let's say, perceptions that exist in the, U- in the U.S., in Britain, and in France about, you know, the possibility of Arab states and now a non-Arab state like Iran possessing such capabilities. Now, the other thing is that essentially there was a consensus and understanding. In some cases, it was quiet, but also clear that there are boundaries to the special case which is the special case was not allowed to go public. The special case was not allowed to test. The special case was to be very careful not to contribute to anybody else's proliferation. I just have to ask you one Shimon Peres question. I was always struck whenever he was attacked, certainly the later Shimon Peres that became known for his peace activities, most famously the Oslo Accords, and won the Nobel Peace Prize with Yitzhak Rabin and, and Yasser Arafat that whenever he was attacked from the right, his response often in public, even though Israel doesn't talk about its nuclear program, he would say like, who are you? Did you build the reactor in Dimona? Were you the architect of Israel's defense industry in the 1950s? First of all, there's no question that he was proud. There is no question that he, let's say, took comfort or gave himself credit, and he deserved the credit for having the role that he had in developing Israel's overall deterrence, especially in cases when it was tested. For example, the debate surfaces in 1991 during the Gulf crisis, when Saddam Hussein launches 41 missiles against Israel, but never puts chemical warheads on these missiles. And there was initially there was a debate about that people thought, well, maybe he just didn't have those chemical warheads, and that that's the reason why he didn't escalate. Because remember, he tries for like 10 or 11 days to get Israel involved in the Gulf War so that he can transform the Gulf War into an Arab Israeli war. And he fails to do this by using conventional warheads on these missiles. So you could say, well, you know, then why didn't he escalate this? to the use of chemical warheads, the reality is he didn't. And although there was some debate as to whether he had them, after the war ended and UN inspections began in Iraq, well, all these chemical warheads were discovered. So we know conclusively that Iraq had chemical weapons and didn't use them. So that was taken by by some people as confirmation that somehow deterrence works or worked, despite the skepticism of some people in the 50s and 60s and 70s and even even in the 80s. So yes, Paris took some pride. And, and in some ways, you could say he, of course, you know, the question is, how much was it him and how much was it uh, Ben-Gurion? I mean, Ben-Gurion was the real, he was the grand strategist of Israel. I don't have an answer to this question. But regardless in both in terms of the Israeli Defense Ministry and the nuclear, Paris had a lot to be proud of, because I think there is no question that Paris's contribution in the 1950s and 60s to Israel's national security was immense, immense. But culturally, we have to remember the centrality of the military 
and military service in Israeli culture in the immediate aftermath of 1948 and through the 50s and through the 60s and so on and so forth. And here, the fact that Peres didn't serve in the military caused him to always be, to some extent, on the defensive. This issue was not so much between him and the right wing. This issue was between him and his opponents within the Labour Party. There was something always defensive about Paris's response on this issue. And I say it's psychological because in reality, Paris had nothing to be defensive about. He had everything to be proud about. And yet he always he found himself on the defensive. And I actually think that this also explains to some extent some of his electoral, electoral defeats. Fascinating. I really want to thank you, Shai, for a very rich conversation. I think you really shed light on this important episode of Israel's history of the 1950s. My pleasure. Thanks both to Shai and Nimrod for their fascinating insights. Shimon Peres, who held every key national security position in Israel from the 1950s to 2014, including twice being prime minister, and being president, is remembered by Americans, Israelis, and the world for his peacemaking efforts at Oslo, starting in 1993, all to the present. Yet people forget the early Paris for his key role in securing Israel's ultimate nuclear deterrent and being an architect of Israel's defense industry. It is crucial to remember how all this unfolded so quickly after the Holocaust. This is also a key part of his legacy, that hopefully we shine the light upon today. Thank you all for joining us. Please go to your favorite podcast app and subscribe, rate, and review Decision Points. And please tell your friends. I've also recently published a book co-authored with Ambassador Dennis Ross on four key Israeli leaders called Be Strong and of Good Courage, How Israel's Most Important Leaders Shaped Its Destiny. I want to thank all of those who made this podcast possible. Our coordinator, Basha Rosenbaum, researcher, Scott Boxer, Jeff Rubin, Scott Rogers, and Carolina Krauskopf of the Washington Institute, Richard Myron and Anouk Millet of Earshot Strategies, and Paul Woody Woodhull of District Productive. Thank you all. <music>